0: wherever there's training and molding of people I see the same principles play out and they are real simply if you want to invoke change discipleship change in somebody or hope in somebody you have to care you have to have empathy and they have to feel it you have to have empathy and they gotta feel it you can have it and not express it doesn't work you can try to express it but don't have it won't work You gotta have empathy and you gotta express it. You gotta believe the coach cares about you. Your boss cares about you. Your teacher cares, your minister cares. You gotta believe they care if you're gonna respond. Two, especially when you're dealing with the basics of life and every day at the mission, we deal with the very basics of life. You have to bring modeling as much as teaching. You have to model the truth you're trying to express in their lives. You have to bring it and posture it and express it. Just like coaches show people how to do things, and then you do it. I'll do it, you do it. I do it, no, that's wrong. Here's how you do it, you do it. Modeling. And finally, repetition. Lots of repetition. Creative, relevant ways of repeating the same truth so people get it and instilled into them. So empathy, modeling, and repetition. And most of all that we do is that. And I think God does it too. I want to open the Bible to show you how he followed the same pattern as we're to follow if we want to help change lives. If If you recall, Christ came here from heaven. And he came here from heaven to do several things. One of which was to model for us how to live a full life. And to gain empathy with us so we would we would trust him and go to him we we go to the throne room because we have a savior who has been through every temptation we've been through and therefore we can trust him and we can go he came to gain empathy to draw us to him and when he was here he modeled how to live the life and as we're going to see in a minute he was very very repetitious about the core issue of how he wants us to live life very repetitious so i'm going to go to the data of the word i'm going to look at basically another way to look at this i'm going to give you the the most repeated theme in the bible four or five different ways to convince you <laughs> the base this is the basics so we can keep doing them keep modeling them and keep repeating them to others as we seek to disciple other people in the lord so i want to start with a scripture and I've asked this, my staff have heard this many, many, many times, That I just shared it this week at the harbor. What is the most repeated saying of Jesus in the Bible? In the Gospels, it's written six times. Every Gospel has it at least once, two Gospels have it twice. More than any other saying, he repeated this more than anything else. So I think he wants us to get it. Any ideas? Staff can't answer. I always hear love or not. I always hear love. No. Huh? Peace. Nope. Repent, nope. Hope. Nope. Repent? nope. Nope. Be not afraid, nope. Nope. For what is worth? I first don't feel bad. I've been asking this question of groups, MDiv people, for 20 years. No one's ever gotten it, ever. And I read it in a little Daily Bread thing once, 30 years ago, a little Daily Bread devotional. Uh, But I've never forgot it, and it's played true in my life, and I've seen it is the basic, it needs to be repeated. We need to hear it over and over again. And here is one of the six times it's in the Bible. It's in John 12, 25. Ready? He who loves his life will lose it. But he who gives his life, in some cases the gospel, in some cases to me, will keep it for eternal life. Basically, surrender. Surrendering your life sacrificially to him so that you may get a life that's full and purposeful, that he has planned for you and has always had planned for you. You'll find the life you were meant to live only as you give the one you got up to him completely. And the context goes on to say, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him my father will honor Giving yourself wholly and totally to him and surrender. And surrendered service to him. That's it. The most repeated saying of Jesus. Now that that's consistent with the Bible, now, isn't it? Because you know, that awkward sermon you get once a year by the pastor sometimes about giving. And one of the most common quoted things I've heard over the 30, 40 years, I've been hearing it, is. There's twice as many verses in the Bible about money than there is about love. You've heard that one? That's true. Well, there's twice as many verses in the Bible about service than there is about money. There's no other theme, there's no more repeated theme in the word old and new than service to others. In fact, most of the money verses are about giving money to others to help serve them. So they all count for service, and plus there's a whole bunch more about service directly. So, the most repeated theme in the word is service to others. Sacrificial, selfless service to others. The most repeated saying of Jesus during the Gospels is about the same thing. And guess what? When he came and he lived on earth, and the Gospel speaks of his life, the narrative of his life in the four Gospels, what's the context of the venues he chooses to be in to do all his teaching in? What's he doing? Selflessly serving others and bringing his crowd with him to watch. Modeling for his disciples how to selflessly serve others. Heal them, deliver them, feed them, teach them, rebuke them. Always going out to them, not having them come to him. He goes out, he serves, he serves, he serves at great cost. He modeled it. The Word speaks of it throughout the Word. It's the most repeated teaching of Christ in the Gospels. Data. There's some data. Hmm. Draw a life principle from it. See, sacrificial service isn't just for the people that do ministry or nonprofit work or the people in your church that have extra empathy by nature. It's universal. If you leave here today, it's the universal Non, non-negotiable evidence that you're a maturing Christian. That people who know you will always see in you an instinct, a posture, a, a constant activity of sacrificial service. That's non-negotiable. That, we're going to go through and show you that more data. But that's it. It's there. You can't get around it. And that's for our benefit as much as the world's. Because speaking of repetition... I've been doing you know, professional ministry for 21 years, and I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of volunteers that serve in missions. And I'm speaking of the ones that come a lot, weekly or once a month, and really give a lot of service, and really are effective in their work, and they're really sacrificial at giving time and talent to serve folks that are homeless or hungry or addicted and etc., And almost every single time I approach those people and thank them for their service, I hear this, speaking of repetition, almost every time. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, but, you know, I get a lot more out of this than I give. Almost every time. they've really learned, they've responded to Christ's call to, to, to serve sacrificially. They've done it, and they've received blessings they didn't expect. Because it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. You, re- when, you when you finally do it, I mean, really do it, you find that out. Now we resisted at first because we got it's a cost. We have to give up our time, our talent. Sometimes where He calls us is kind of not real attractive, and the. Situation is kind of uncomfortable. We resist it, but if we, by faith, leap in, we find that truth. I'm getting more out of this, and I'm given. That's God's economy. So the call to sacrificial, surrendered service is not. It's costly to our agenda, to our pride, to our ego, to our affections, but it's beautifully redemptive to our soul, and it grows and expands us. The paradox. You surrender to win in God's kingdom. But the surrender always looks like sacrificial service, and primarily the people in the margins. You can, one of the, the subtitles of this talk could be Life in the Margins. And we're going to see the data. is It's not just service to your... They, God assumes you're going to treat your family well, you're going to treat your coworkers well, because, hey, there's self-interest in that too. That helps you. You know, they do well, you do well. That's why most all the calls to service in the Bible are to people on the margins. Again, not for specialists like me in the mission, to every Christian. And we're going to jump in. So I'll give you the punchline. Just dig in and look at the data. What do you say? So the second scripture, Romans 12. I have a lot of friends that are, you know, very steeped in, they're MDivs, and, and they have, you know, theological chops. And when you ask them, you know, hey, where's the best summary? For years I've asked this question. Where's the best short summary of how to live a Christian life? And the answer I get most is Romans 12. Go to Romans 12. It summarizes it really well. Romans 12 starts like this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Sacrificially surrendering yourself on the altar of God in order to serve. There it is again. And then the rest of the, the, rest of the chapter is unpacking how to live the Christian life. But it starts there. Repetition. Ephesians. All these are kind of iconic verses. You know, Ephesians 4 talks about the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of God, how he gives all these different gifts to build up the body of Christ. But in the end, the reason for all that gifting and all that building up is what? For the work, 12 and 16, for the work of the ministry, to equip others, do the work of serving others to lift them up. In the heart of that passage, and the last verse of that passage, for whom the whole body joined and knit together for whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. You work and do your share of lifting others up with the giftings he's given you. You sacrificially serve others with what you've been given. I could be here a few days. We, we would not run out of data. But I'm just giving you the really highlights, the iconic ones, to convince you this is not a subset of people. Christian service. It is everybody. It's the clearest manifestation that Christ is afoot in your life. And why wouldn't it be? Every, everybody here who knows, anybody in this room who knows Jesus, I guarantee this is true about your past. God pursued you despite yourself. Various degrees of resistance before you gave in. He caught you. He redeemed you. And now that same spirit every time, once redeemed, redeeming someone, wants you then to be enlisted to do the same thing he did to you, to others. Pursue, engage, bring them to redemption. So he will always send you to the margins to do just what he's done for you. James, the brother of Christ, the, head of the church, administrative head of the church. Paul and Peter were the main emissaries to the Jews and Gentiles. James oversaw the council in Jerusalem. The book of James I like. It's direct, it's blunt, it's short, it's to the point. I like that. And what's the core of his message? The middle of his book. Faith without works is dead. And he begins that passage with this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one who says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which they are needed for the body, what does it profit? And he goes on about works and faith and works and Abraham had it and we need to have it. But it led with what? Helping destitute people as an example, his first example of faith expressed through works. You can't get away from this stuff, guy. There's no way out of this. It's just everywhere. I've tried, but believe me, what he didn't tell you, I don't have time to tell you, is that I resisted many years doing what I'm doing now. I mean, Danny was kind. I mean, probably almost a decade before I finally said, okay, I'll go do this. So I know of what I speak as far as resisting this reality. And and God just bared me with data and conviction before I I finally said, I give, I give. My surrender was a hard-fought, long one. Uh, So I I know how resisted we are to self-sacrifice. Luke 14, 13 and 14. Again, lest we think this service is just to the body of Christ... The majority of these conjuncti- these exhortations are to serving people on the margins. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Self-sacrificial service. There's nothing going to nothing's going to make your life better by doing this, in the natural. There's no ROI. These folks you're serving, there's no way they're going to come back and help you later in your mind. But like I said, if you, volunteer, you do this, you find you're blessed beyond measure. You never thought in the soul as you do it because God's saying, "Well done, let me bless you," and you feel full and you things start happening in your life you never anticipated, just by following the model of Christ, of self-sacrificial service to the margins. And James said the same thing just a chapter earlier from his his, his faith is. Faith without works is dead. There's two or three times in the Bible where it just stops and says, and here is religion. In one sentence, this is religion. This one in the Old Testament, this one in the New Testament. This is one in the New Testament. James, the administrator of the church, said, hey, here it is. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows. Widows. People on the margins with nothing. No community, no finance. Go visit them. This is pure and undefiled religion. Go do do that and keep yourself unspotted from the world. The Old Testament parallel, you all, these are all iconic, you know them all. Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. To express mercy and justice to those who need it, desperately. To do it humbly. Data. Big data. There's another Old New Testament pairing that's, I think, Relevant here, too. I call it the big questions. The two big questions uh, that are answered by Christ in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. The big questions are very similar. In the Old Testament, it was about a physical Israel, and God spoke and dealt with her. New Testament, it's spiritual Israel. It's the church. And the big question in the New Testament the disciples had were was, Tell us about the end times. Tell us about the end of days. Tell us about that judgment. Tell us. And his answer to the big question was, in Matthew 24 and 25, two chapters worth, he told repetition. He told three parables, in case they didn't get the first one or the second one or the third one. And he followed the three parables by a description, a vivid narrative of the end times. Not a parable, narrative. So they they would not miss this. And the three parables, I won't read them, but the faithful servant and the evil servant, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, and the parable of talents, all saying the same thing. Until I come back, serve faithfully. Use your talents to serve faithfully until I come. And if you're found serving faithfully, it'll be okay. (laughs) But if you're not, it won't be okay. That was his summary. But in case they didn't get it in parable, he did it in straight-up narrative. And I'll read that to you. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. This ends his two-chapter narrative on the, the big question. What about the end times? And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from the other as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. There are six verbs there, folks. They're actions. All to people groups on the margin. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he also said to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? He will say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, And as much as you did not do it to one of the least of my people, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Repetition. By the way, in the Bible, in the Greek and Hebrew, there's no explanation points. There's no bold font. There's no italics. So you make a point by what? Repetition. And two, saying something twice means emphasis. Saying it three times is the normal exclamation mark. Three times. All through the Bible, three times is an exclamation part. The only two places I know, Danny may know others, but I know they had more than, than three. This has four. Four times that people group, thirsty, hungry, naked, sick, in prison, was mentioned four times in this passage. So we wouldn't we would get it. Four times it's mentioned. The only time it's mentioned more is A chapter, two chapters earlier in Matthew 23, the seven woes, woe unto you Pharisees, woe unto you seven times, and what's he doing there? He's attacking the Pharisees for ignoring this and self-absorption ruling their life in the name of religion. Seven. Four, to emphasize how to do it right, so it's like a double exclamation point. Repetition. The Old Testament pair to this, same idea, big question. Israelites, the kingdom of God in Israel, were having problems. They were had significant economic issues inside their country, trends were down the wrong way, external threats were rising, moral decay was happening throughout their culture. Sound familiar? And they were lamenting and lamenting and praying and fasting and trying to invoke God's intervention to all this. And nothing happened. The trends kept getting bad. And then finally Isaiah came and said, hey, God heard you. And he has some, his reply for you to your big question. Why aren't you helping us? Here's his big answer. Isaiah 58, 6 to 12. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring to your house the poor who are cast out? You see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break forth like the morning. Your healing shall bring spring forth speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. Then you shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, and if you extend your soul to the hungry, not just their... Their physical needs, you, you serve their soul, and you satisfy the afflicted soul. You extend your soul to their soul. This isn't just transactional giving, folks. This is messy. This is proximal proximity messiness. Your soul hits their soul, and it's a transfer of life, and they are lifted, they are served, you are sacrificed. And you benefit tremendously from it, as do they. And God is honored through it. Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as a noonday. The The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Amen? So that's the big data. I'd like to make a couple comments on this, going back to the the Matthew piece lest we try to do checkbox service, you know, the, you know, I'm old enough, anybody older than me knows this too, the social gospel movement, you all know that, where it was back in the 60s and 70s, where it was all about social justice, but not about Jesus. Just wrong, right the wrongs, for advocacy, kind of strident, kind of angry, get it done, politically motivated, and it got kind of a bad name, social justice gospel. That's half Right. just the motivation for it should be a surrendered life to Jesus because of what he's done for you freed you, redeemed you and out of that place of empathy and compassion and gratitude you go and you do social justice and you do it wherever it it impinges on you, you do it is it work, is it in church is it at home, is it in parachurch ministries is it on the way to work There's ample opportunities. This world is full of marginalized folks that are hurting. There's some in this room right now, I'm sure, right now, that feel marginalized. There's some in your extended family, in your workplace. There's no lack of opportunity in your life to engage this instinct, to take this posture of humble servant, and to engage. There's no lack. What are you doing about it? Are we responding as Christ responded to us, modeled for us, repeated to us? So it's not a box you check. You notice in Matthew, both those groups, the sheep and the goats, neither, both were surprised. When did we? When didn't we? They just did what was in their heart. The sheep had the instinct to serve and to care for the marginalized. They just did it because God had put it there because of their communion with him and their sacrifice to him. He directed them almost thoughtlessly. They just did it for Jesus. And we're kind of puzzled. He was so honored by it. And the ones going to hell go, when did we ignore you? I, I. When you didn't do that, your heart had no, no compassion in it, no empathy You didn't sacrifice for these folks. You took no time for them. You were busy about your own business. Sorry. See you. So it's not a checkbox, you know, dogmatic thing. It's a natural, instinctive response to gratitude for being saved in him and wanting to pursue other people as he pursued you. I want to end with the Samaritan story, another iconic verse. Um, you know the story. You know, Israelites on the side of the road, beat up, dangerous part of the road. Two Jewish folks go by, one a lawyer, one a priest, Levite, and they, they ignore him, they pass by. Third person comes by, a Samaritan. The first two had more reason to help than the last one, because they were what, same race, same ethnic group, and they believed in a religion that said you should help people. But self-interest ruled. Spontaneous, automatic, who, where their soul was at, self-interest, they left the guy dying there and kept going. Because it's dangerous here. It could happen to you if you linger. Those same guys may be around too. It's going to cost you time and probably money, certainly some empathy and, and effort to get this guy to help. Last guy came by, he had ethnic reasons not to do this. Different ethnic, you know, Samaritans and Jews don't get along. In fact, Jews are elitists against Samaritans. Additional barriers to help, but yet he did it. And I just want to point out one thing. What did he do? What led him to do that? Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, the injured man, in the margin of the road, Spontaneously happened. Ethnic barriers, cultural barriers, prejudicial barriers, danger afoot. But he had compassion. That's translated a yearning in the bowels. Innate to this person's character was a concern for others and a willingness to risk and have great cost to help others, inherent to who he was, despite his label, his race, his ethnicity. And he responded to that and followed that into service. At the end of the parable, this is Christ talking, this is a parable he's sharing. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And He said, he who showed mercy, mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. That was modeled for you, go do it. I've modeled it for you. The Samaritan in the parable modeled it for you. Now you go do it too. This is done out of compassion and mercy, not out of duty. But I do think, in my own life, it speaks to it, sometimes my first steps I took were out of duty. Reluctant duty. But when I took little baby steps, reluctantly, late Guess what? When I did it, the experience of of helping changed me. And I gained a little bit of empathy. I had a little stirring in my bowels. It wasn't a yearning yet. (laughs) Just a little stirring. And the more I, I responded, some more and some more, that began to develop. As I began in obedience, it became natural over time supernaturally given so that it became a natural response that compassion became part of who I was that wasn't part of who I was before I started responding so don't wait for compassion we've got enough data to say uh-uh. nobody has accepted this is what you do a maturing Christian looks like this always has always will get in the game despite your discomfort Despite your lack of even warm fuzzies, get in the game. There's plenty of game to play, it's all around you. And as you get in, you're gonna find empathy and compassion growing. And your ability to be used as an instrument of redemption increasing. And your life broadening and deepening and enriching. And everybody wins. But it starts with surrender to sacrificial service. Over the neck of your own affections or Comfort level. I have to stop. 1110, right? I have much more, of course, I always do, but I will stop there. Um, Danny? We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.